Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Bowell, and today we are pulling open Hollywood's crypt to review Sean Baker's 2015 Tangerine. Why does he owe you money? We made a business transaction. And so, I mean, right off the bat, I've got a absolute shit ton I can talk about for this movie <laughs> from a technical side of things. But, you know, I, I, I want to tell the listeners what they missed. And also, I wanted to get your bit, your thoughts on the movie. Before you completely spend the rest of the episode ranting, raving, saying, oh my gosh, all the things. <laughs> Because yeah. you're really excited. Yes. Because the film geek in you is breaking out. Okay, like this movie straight up inspires me, which is not something I can say about most of what we've seen on cult fiction. Uh, that's a damn fact. But in case you missed the movie, Tangerine is the braided narrative of C and Alexandra, two sex workers working in downtown LA, and Rosnick, the cab driver. But when I say braided narrative, it's it's a really lovely interweaving tale about cheating and morals and sex work and gender. But also it's just so pretty. This movie is beautiful. And that is so astounding because, and, and anybody who's, a bit of a film nerd probably knows about it, but anyone who's not, this movie was shot on three iPhones. That's it. Three iPhones, three itty bitty dinky lights, and an app on your iPhone that lets you like control the camera so that it comes across as a film camera. And that is it. It is insane how good this movie is, especially given that handicap. Um, and this, I mean, this is what made this movie famous. This is why, honestly, this movie wound up on the list. It it got a lot of hype for being the first ever movie to be shot entirely on iPhone. So you would say a little bit it's accessible, which is interesting given the themes of the movie about accessibility and um, the cultures that Tangerine deals with. Right, because... My favorite thing about it from a non-technical uh, non-technical sense is just how gritty and realistic this movie manages to be. And and I'm actually really fascinated by the director and also the writer Sean Baker. Um, people will know him most for the Florida Project, which was his next movie and got Willem Dafoe an Oscar. But, you know, I dug around with this guy a little bit and he's made like five or six movies and all of his actual movies have this beautiful down to earth, like super humble showing the, the dark corners of American society, especially that nobody ever really looks at unless it's a crime epic mm. but this wasn't a crime epic this was just a look into somebody's life and yeah it's somebody on the bottom rung of society but it winds up being totally like non-condemnational or yeah. preachy or anything like that i thought yeah that was what i really appreciated was that it it looks at sex work 
not from a lens of condemnation, not from a lens of shame, but from a lens of accurate presentation. Yeah. Um, the thing I wanted to really say is, you know, Baker has uh, a bunch of different films. Tangerine and Florida Project are the the ones that everyone's heard of. But he's got a movie called Takeout, which is like 24 hours in the life of an illegal Chinese immigrant who works at like a New York Chinese place. Oh, that's fascinating. That's awesome. Uh, Florida Project shows the like that super faded, gross, like... Like the surrounding area of Kissimmee and and the suburbs of Disneyland, they're actually like really kind of awful to be around. Which as a Florida boy, I'm sure you kind of love. Kind of love. And, you know, I, I appreciate that he did the same thing with Tangerine showing, you know, West Hollywood as just where the freaks come out to play and showing this this snapshot of American culture, which is incredibly important, especially when you come to find out in the past five years, the entire half block this movie was filmed on has been gentrified to the point where Donut Time, which is, you know, the main location of the movie, is now a coffee shop owned by Danny Trejo. Cool. I love it when my town gets gentrified and (laughs) turned into something else. Yeah, you especially, Miss Asheville. Um, well, no, I mean, me, Miss Asheville, but growing up in California, like, I have absolutely driven through West Hollywood. And like, no, these are, you know, I remember being 10 or 11. And, you know, us getting lost in West Hollywood and my mom, like, locking the car doors because she didn't want to let the wrong kind of people in. Sure. Like, this is a very familiar um, scene to me from a different perspective like i am a privileged white person i am not a sex worker but that the juxtaposition of sex work with cabbing and how they both work basically in the service industry i love that because honestly i'll I'll go ahead and say like you you texted me and you made it clear that you really enjoyed like loved this movie yeah and I don't know if I loved it as much as you did. It gets major, major, major bonus points because of all the technical stuff, which I'm more than happy to gush after. That's a really good point because I was sitting here feeling that Raznik's, you know, entire third of the movie felt so tacked on. Mm-hmm. And it was like Sean Baker wanted to make another movie about what it's like to be a closeted gay Armenian cab driver mm-hmm. and just threw it on tangerine but you've tied it together by bringing yeah. that point up and i really like that well i think it's like he gets to see throughout the movie with rosnick we see the depth of west hollywood humanity yeah he takes two very suburban upper class kids from the hills towards a good club where they know they're gonna find a party but they're too drunk to even pay their way and end up puking in his cab. Like, he gets the entirety of the West Hollywood experience. Um, and I think Rosnick might be actually more setting than anything else. Like, he's kind of a backdrop and a plot propulsion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which I have to say is kind of nice for the dude to be the plot propulsion. Sure. <laughs> That's a great point. You know, another, another thing in this 
movie's favor and i don't think it was the first movie to do to do this but it certainly is one of the more prominent is it actually had its uh transsexual transgendered characters played by transgendered actors yeah so the character who played cindy was taking her first testosterone shot when she got the role Right, and it's it's like that person, uh, Katana Kiki Rodriguez, it's her first movie. Yeah. Maya Taylor, who's the other, uh, you know, the other lead, Alexandra, it's like her third movie. But really taking mostly unknowns, but not doing the Dallas Buyers Club thing with Jared Leto. Yeah. Or not casting Scarlett Johansson because... As an Asian person. Well, as an Asian person or as a, a trans man. That happened? That is that was in the works. I think COVID killed the project. Oh, fucking thank God. <laughs> <laughs> this movie, um, I definitely will say, is the most... I, I believe it's the most diverse movie that we've reviewed on Cult Fiction. Sure. So much so that I was counting the white people. And I was thrilled that it was, it was under 10. Yeah. No, it, it's like... It's so fascinating to me. It's this this guy, this Sean Baker as an artist and Tangerine as a movie feels truly indie. And I really wonder how much it would have gotten from a hype perspective or anything like that if it hadn't been filmed on the iPhone. Because the whole story of it was uh, he kept that completely under wraps until after this movie premiered at Sundance Film Festival interesting which was a brilliant move because people were able to judge the merit of the movie for its own merits rather than as a gimmick but then then you pull the reveal and it's like what that's clever well and because when we pulled this last time you had told me oh hey by the way this is the movie and because i have a terrible short-term memory i had completely forgotten and so i just sat back and enjoyed the movie as a movie sure and then you and i were texting about it afterwards as we do as close friends and i was mentioned that it was filmed on an iphone and i was like wait that was this movie because there's so annie there's so much beautiful color there's so much beautiful cinematography the shots are stunning absolutely and i wouldn't have even thought twice about it i was like oh yeah there's some great camera work it's lovely oh wait fuck what yeah like the the thing that is so stunning and cool and amazing um, you know, talked about how uh, eccentric West Hollywood is. And in an interview, um, it was either Sean Baker or it was his um, assistant director of photography, a guy named Radium Chung, um, was talking about how one of the benefits of actually shooting in legit, real West Hollywood um, was they were able to keep such a lower profile instead of you know, blocking off the block and pulling out regular cameras and having real lighting and all of that, which would have caused a spectacle and would have had people, you know, coming to ogle or maybe heckle or, you know, whatever. It's it's literally a phone strapped to a, um, a Steadicam device that is meant to hold your phone with a prototype lens adapter on it. And then, like, a couple of rinky-dinky lights and a professional sound guy. And that's 
it. That is your setup. That's impressive. That's impressive. And the lower profile manages to get so much more. Like most of the extras in the movie are just people who were legitimately didn't even know they were going to be in this. Just walking wherever the hell they were going that day. That's really cool. It's kind of like guerrilla filmmaking extreme. It is absolutely guerrilla filmmaking. <laughs> and I think like this is our first real example of that. I'm going to go with you under one condition. You must promise me that there's not going to be any drama. I promise. I promise. Look at me in my eyes and promise. I promise no drama, Alexandria. I love that so much. Speaking of guerrilla filmmaking, you saw something about how John Waters uh, enjoyed this. Oh my gosh. I was, um, so as usual, I page through the IMDb afterwards to see if there's anything I didn't catch. I look at the spoofs. You know, I look at the quotes, I look at the whatever. Um, Apparently, this was John Waters, like, it was in his top 10 movies of the year it was released. He loved it so, so, so much. Sure. No, yeah. And and 2015 was an amazing year for, for movies. But this one, like, this is an important thing to see. Yeah. Especially for a film nerd. Like, this is... This is a history-making movie. I I have to laugh because I feel like the crypt knew. Obviously, the crypt knew. We didn't know. Uh, not only was this movie distributed by Magnolia Films, which is the same like distribution company that put out Pusher from the last episode, but this this felt like such a perfect double feature companion piece. Yeah. We're crossing countries. We're we're going, you know, over the span of thirty years difference, but these are both such down to earth, so close into the pavement of the sidewalk that you're feeling the grit scrape your cheek. Looks at low level people who are on the bottom ladders of society. Yeah. And I mean, I, I thought Cindy was such a comparable to Frank. And I want to break that sentence down with you because you hated <laughs> the shit out of Frank. I hated the shit out of Frank. And I have to say the only thing that was redeeming about Cindy was her life circumstance. Mm, okay. I, I had to try. I know that you and I've also texted a little bit with Mariah because I know she watched it with you. Um, about this movie. And I know that Cindy is an unlikable character. Yes. She is vastly unlikable. She is impulsive. She is loud. She, the premise of the movie is that she searches for the woman that her fiance, we come to find out, has cheated with her on. But she does it in the most obnoxious way. Yeah. However, I know that she's unlikable. I know she's loud. I know she's over the top. I kind of have to appreciate the struggle of my man cheated on me. I just got out of jail. I need to find her and punish her. However, yeah, Cindy is very unlikable. Right, because here's my counterpoint. Okay. If you go into the bathroom 
during your best friend's musical set in the middle of her set to smoke crack, you're a bad friend. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) All right. You have me there. Um, absolutely. She, yeah, no, um, she's not great. She's our, she's all right though. Cause she remember like she straight up kidnaps this girl mm-hmm. that her fiance has cheated on her with kidnaps her, steals her from a brothel, takes her across mid daylight, all drives her all the ass way across West Hollywood to confront her fiance and then goes, Oh wait, I have to go to my friend's <laughs> show. Right. So there, there is, there is a charm like underneath everything. And, you know, I, I say, I don't like the character as a mark of appreciation. I say it as a good thing. You know, I, I thought it was a good thing to not like Frank or Tunney because yeah. they were awful people on the bottom rungs of society. Um, Cindy and Dinah and to a much, much, much less extent Alexandra fall into that same exact category. Now there's an argument to be had about sex work versus dealing drugs. Um, and, I'm not trying to say that like, oh, they're, they're bad people for being prostitutes. Um, but they are bad people (laughs) for the most part. They're bad people because of what, who they are. Yes. Not because of what they do. Exactly. Alexandra, however, is a perfect, perfect gem. My favorite part of the movie. I, I absolutely loved Maya Taylor. You're so great. So great. The the look she gives Cindy in the opening scene when like Cindy's processing <laughs> that her boyfriend's cheated on her. She gives so much with just a look that is utterly hilarious. And I really hope to see more from you know the actor. I love her. Her voice, there's a scene where, like you said, she has a set and she sings a Christmas song in a mm-hmm. Christmas club. Um, her voice is gorgeous. The um fact that she pays to sing in the Christmas club. Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. And then Dinah highlights it when they're on the bus. She discovers that Alexandra paid to paid to sing there because she previously had thought that she got paid to sing. And she was saying, oh, girl, you're doing so great. You got paid to sing. Look at you. You're doing wonderfully. And Cindy tells Dinah, no, she paid to sing there. And Dinah aptly says... Oh, you paid them? That's pathetic. Yeah. And it's so heartbreaking. And it, it absolutely is. You know, you, you get... First of all, I gotta say, fuck everyone else that they bumped into that day who took one of Alexandria's flyers and then didn't show up. Oh, I know. Because nobody's at the restaurant. Like, that was... No one. It's that was the ju- kicker. It is just Cindy and Dinah sitting there. And then when they get up to pee... No one else that she invited is in the club. It's just people who are at the bar drinking already. Yeah. So, you know, we we saw like six or seven like West Hollywoodians who were like, who, who, who absolutely did the, oh my God, yeah, sure, I'll come to the function uh, kind of thing. And all of them are bailers. And listen, I get it. You don't like, if you go to everybody's thing, especially in West Hollywood, you're never going to have a night to yourself. But. Still bothered me. It was Christmas Eve. It was Christmas Eve. 
It was Christmas Eve. Maybe they had maybe they had dinners to attend. Maybe maybe they had Armenian dinners where they had cognac. Can I just say so um Alex's family always celebrates Christmas on December 24th and sure. that's how we work Christmas like his family gets Christmas Eve, my family gets white people Christmas. <laughs> um, and it's, it's very it's very appropriate. We have drunk Colombian Christmas on Christmas Eve and we have quiet white people Christmas the next day when we're completely hungover. There you go. Um, but there was something so relatable about like celebrate the way that they celebrated Alex was like, oh this is this is immigrant Christmas and I was like, oh, oh no. So the fact that, you know, Rosnick leaves to go pursue Alexandra. Yeah. Actually, I think it's Cindy. Oh, it is Cindy. Yeah. Oh, no. That's even worse. Yeah. That's even worse. She's not. Mm, oh, no. She's not a good person. That's the one way, like, that's that's the one thing. Like you said, Rosnick is kind of set dressing. He's kind of got his own movie going on, but he's. He functions as plot advancement for even kind of a just minor extent for Cindy. Like, like everything about Cindy and Alexandra's movie can happen without Rosnick. Mm -hmm. Rosnick's movie cannot happen without Cindy and Alexandra. Cindy's back on the block? Oh yeah, she's back. She's back and she's going hard. And that's true. Um, the car wash scene. <laughs> can we talk about the car wash scene uh, absolutely what do you want to say <laughs> it was so wonderfully and tastefully done sure sure so it's alexandra giving getting getting head from rosmic because it turns out that's his that's his deal that is his thing um and there's so much said without anything being said yeah. And I really liked that. I really liked how that was done. It was a really great interaction. It, it uh, was something I've never thought about anybody doing. And <laughs> now I have. <laughs> I want to go back a second. Uh, um, so there's the scene where Rosnick picks up the other prostitute. Yes, the one from Santa Clarita. The one from Santa Clarita, whose name was like Serena, I think. Well, she said, my name's whatever you want it to be. So I don't really depend on her name actually being Serena. Fair. Fair. She gives her name as Serena. Um, I lost my shit at that scene. But like, I got to tell you, did you think she was a cop the whole time? Oh, the entire time? Yes, absolutely. Because we've recently watched Hollywood and I've... I've thought about like, oh, it's so, so easy to be like, hey, I'm going to pay you ahead of time and then arrest you. That was the thing. Absolutely. There's such a tension. There's such a no, no, no. Don't go here. Okay. No, no, no. Go down this specific alley. Okay. Give me the money. You want me to do what? Like I was just waiting for it to be a bust, which made it so tension relievingly hilarious when... He discovers that she is biologically female and kicks her out and screams at her for being on the wrong corner. <laughs> He's like, no, that block is not for you. It's not for you. You need to understand the rules, Serena. God, Serena, get it right. <laughs> oh, man, I loved that. That that honestly was one of the funniest parts of the movie for me. <laughs> sure. so, so breaking, like continuing on about that scene and then 
juxtaposing it with Alexandra's own experience. I loved that this movie got into the nitty gritty economics of modern day prostitution. Yeah. Like it's no, you put the money on the dash. I perform a service. I get the money. And, and those two scenes playing out at pretty much the same exact time, uh, I thought was actually really effective filmmaking because it, it, introduces you to the concept in case you're unfamiliar but it shows how both of those interactions could have gone so much worse yeah you know we discuss thinking that serena's a cop and, and rasnick's about to get you know caught up in a sting alexander's got it even worse getting into a car with a man who is not helping the situation and being a complete and utter asshole and demeaning towards the person he's trying to get a, a hand job from, trying to get a dollar's worth for 10 cents, or, or specifically trying to get like five bucks worth for, or uh, trying to get 20 bucks worth for five dollars. And, you know. Or trying to get a hundred bucks worth for $40. Right, right. That's, that's, that's what it was. Right, right, right. right. Um, and. You know, the breakdown of of that entire interaction that ends with this shitty, garbage, realistic, none of these people know how to fight tussle that is broken up by the most, like, nonchalant-ass cops ever. <laughs> you done with, you've dealt with him before, which is what bothered me. They refer, they refer sure. to Alexandra as Alexander. Right, right. And they call him, call her... He's aggressive, but also they refer to Alexandra like they've known, they've dealt with her before. And they just say, you know what, let's just call it Christmas. Everyone go home. Yeah, because that's their shitty beat. And they're a couple of West Hollywood, like, patrol officers who deal with this garbage every day. The bit where the patrolman is asking, so what did he owe you money for? We were conducting a business transaction. Like, everybody knows what's going on. Nobody's got time for it. Um, you know, the cult, fit, the, the cult fiction stance is a cab, but those two were okay. I will, I will say I very much appreciate that the cop was just like, just go home. Just every, everybody just, everybody just go home. Let's just dissolve this as quickly as possible. Which is like, all, you know, the best interaction just about all parties can hope for. Sure. Uh, I saw this in an interview. Both Maya Taylor and Katana Rodriguez um, had experiences as transgender prostitutes in West L.A. And they discussed how, you know, there is a fear every time you oh, get into a car. But this is how you make your money. Of course. And so this is what's going to happen today. Okay. This shows my naivete. Homestever. Did $40 seem really cheap to you? I mean, yes, but like, like in Pusher, we had Vic, a champagne girl. She gets, you know, 20,000 kroner for... An evening of escort service. Alexandra and Cindy are a couple of 
West Hollywood corner girls whom we see like no fewer than seven others in the film. The term like $5 hooker is kind of a, a joke and has been propagated through media as a derogatory and meanly offensively comedic thing. But with that said, $40 seemed cheap, but it didn't seem that cheap to me at least. Noted. Um, the music is beautiful. The soundtrack kicks ass. Absolutely. It's so stunning. And I think it, it pairs so well because you, there's a moment where something really mundane is happening and we have like sweeping violins. But also we have, I think there's a either a Biggie or a Tupac or something song that's paired with this really like meaningful moment. Absolutely. Yeah. So I feel the soundtrack so accurately plays with meaning and moment. Um, I just, I have to say, I really appreciated how purposefully everything was taken in the movie. No, absolutely. Like, I mean, that's that's kind of the trick. Like, this wasn't a couple of schmoes who just broke out their iPhones and were like, we're going to make a movie because we're artists. It was professional filmmakers and, and, you know, production people and Sean Baker just simply deciding, okay, I'm going to make my fifth movie shot entirely with iPhone. Is it a little bit of... A gimmick thing? Sure. Is it also insanely practical? Yes. Do I want to make history and prove I can do this? Absolutely. Um, but, you know, this was professionally recorded and mixed and edited, and every component other than the actual cinematography of this movie was Hollywood-level standard. Um, and that makes for a really effective message, like you're saying. I love that... I, I love the soundtrack, the moment with the sweeping violins you're talking about, or even all of the like insanely fast-paced EDM stuff that we get as Cindy is running around looking for Dinah, looking for you know her her man's new uh, person so that she can beat her up. Her man's new fish. Her man's new fish, like real fish, um, and and the you know the the soundtrack emotionally charges the scene and creates a justification for you, the audience. So I, I absolutely adored that part of it. And I think there's, there's really purposeful moments in when we have sound and when we don't, there's a non audio scene between Cindy and Dinah, right? Where their friendship weirdly forms granted over crack. Um, but then there's this there's this moment of, yeah, we share a man, and yeah, originally I didn't like you, but now I kind of like you because we've shared this crazy night. Um, and it's it's just bizarre, but it's also really vulnerable. Yeah. No, it is. And, and I, I want to touch on that a bit because, like... You know, I, I keep using the term bottom rung of society and, and, and my comments about the charging of sex work. It's all about like nobody in this movie quite respects themselves enough to charge more than $100 for 
so-and-so or to not settle for $40 because, hey, you need the $40. Um, Cindy and Dinah and Chester are all so just stuck in the mud of society, the absolute bottom rung, that they gained this apathy and this roll with the punches like attitude, which I would honestly say is like the real quote unquote villain. Like Chester's a shithead. I'm so, <laughs> I'm so glad we're finally talking about Chester. <laughs> um, Chester's a shithead. We can elaborate that on a second, <laughs> but like Cindy stays with Chester. Dinah mm-hmm. stays in her situation. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's just this whole thing of, well, this is how Christmas Eve is going. This is what my life is. Yeah. Like, and, and, and to the bit about Cindy and Dinah's friendship, like by the time they are in the bathroom where Alexandra is performing the gig, like even before uh, Cindy breaks out the crack pipe, like Dinah's like trying to give makeup advice and like, it's like, okay, you dragged me by my hair across the city, but this is my life and this is how it goes. And if you're not going to drag me by my hair anymore, then we're friends now because when you're that low, you need every support system you can get, I guess. Sure. And I think there's a really beautiful moment in their like realization of this is where we are. They're riding on the bus at one point and they're just kind of like, Oh, hold on. I have it's when she says, oh, hold on, I have to go see my friend's show. And Dinah just kind of goes, like, she gives in to, yeah. okay, this is going to be my night, whatever. Right. And and on the one hand, that's, like, fascinating. And on the other hand, that is so depressing and heartbreaking and horrible. I know what it is. You're breaking up with him. Thank God. I'm going to be cheating on you like that. Wait, 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 wait. What? You, you didn't know? Mm. Speaking of depressing and heartbreaking and horrible, Chester? <laughs> I am so... So I was expecting this beautiful man. Oh, no. So when you finally see him, I'm like, ew, that? <laughs> that? Girl, that? I was expecting, like, a beautiful built man. But why would he be... A pimp in West Hollywood, if he had anything going for him. I, I don't, I, because I'm, because I, That's I, fair. I will say, um, <laughs> I, I think I like Chester more than you did. He's definitely a shitty, despicable character, but he's also played by Jack Ransom, who is from The Wire and It Too, and is somebody who I just absolutely adore the work for. Um, back when I was, you know, talking about you and thinking up cult fiction in my brain, I really wanted to make Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, Six Degrees of The Wire. (laughs) 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 And just like figure out how, um, how much, sorry, it's fucking me. How much, um, how, how I could link anybody to an actor who's been in The Wire, which is certifiably, like, one of the three greatest TV shows of all time. So I should probably watch The Wire at some point. If you walk through the garden, you better watch your back. 
and, and it's fucking Ziggy. Like anybody who knows The Wire, seeing that actor who played that character as this, and, and it is a big reveal. You know, you spend an entire like two thirds of the movie waiting to see Chester. And then it's Ziggy from The Wire. And he's just an absolute shit heel who couldn't even pick up his fiance because Cindy is his fiance at that moment in the film from prison because he's got to work the street. He's got to work the corners. He's just underwhelming is the best word. Absolutely. You you spend the whole money... You spend the whole movie thinking about... Chester, which also should have been an indicator because I have never met a human named Chester. Oh, sad day. Who's a like upstanding fellow. But okay, so you meet Chester. He's underwhelming as all get out. Mm-hmm. And then also Cindy goes, did you even get me a Christmas present? And his face is Every boyfriend who has never gotten their partner a Christmas present and has gone, oh, fuck. Yup. And he's boned. And he knows it. (laughs) It was just a perfect, a great moment of wonderful acting. Oh, it was. And I mean, and that's, you know, that's the point. Like he, he is the only actual named actor in the entire cast, as far as I can tell. Um, everyone else, or, or at least I should say he is the most high profile. Um, the only other person who like I saw them and recognized was the the madam in the hotel brothel. Mm-hmm. The, the bigger blonde lady. And I recognized her from Vine. So that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're working with here. <laughs> oh my god, I love that. But Jack Ransom is delightful. Um, you know, by the time they're smoking crack behind the donut shop and he's just babbling on about government conspiracies and space and shit, I was like, all right, I don't like you, but I enjoy you now. (laughs) Um, with talking about Chester and talking about the sex work in the, in the hotel brothel, this is a good point to bring up the reading wreck that I came up with for this. There is a nonfiction book called Revolting Prostitutes, The Fight for Sex Workers' Rights by Molly Smith, which is all about sex workers taking over lawmakers and writing to senators and saying like, hey, listen, this happens. Can we get some protection, please? Um... And I feel like a lot of this movie, I was like, hmm, there's, it's Wild West kind of situation out here. It absolutely is. You can, you can pull somebody by their hair three city blocks and nobody will bat an eyelash. Like, it's, it's whatever it's going to be. If you can do it, you can do it. Yeah. Yeah. Girl, do you really want to go back to prison? You just got out, mama. I told her that too. Don't be acting like prison is a bad place to go. I want to talk about uh, the donut shop a little bit. The donut shop, which sadly no longer exists. Um, I thought it was a delightful thing. It's, It's important, I think, in the movie to have that cornerstone. It's deeply ironic to me that it turns out Chester was hanging out at donut time 
the entire movie and you know presumably it showed up there like a half hour after Cindy and Alexandra left and had just been mm. sitting at his table like the other dude does in the uh the Mexican food place um everything in donut time was filmed over the span of 3 nights um and they only had like 5 hours a night because the legit real Vietnamese donut shop was like we're not going to stop business operation for you. Like we'll leave the lights on and give you keys to the place, but no. Uh, (laughs) So another part of the filmmaking that I actually deeply appreciate, um, you know, working on a movie, um, even one as insane and uh, substandard as Sharknado 3, which is the only movie I've ever actually worked on. Mm. Like we spent a month running around Universal Studios like, trust me when I say doing all of that back third of the movie in three days, in 15 hours, really, broken up, is incredibly impressive. I yeah. love it. Yeah, I will say there's something, um, as a native Californian, there's something really lovely about the Vietnamese owned donut shop. Because I'm like, I have not this exact donut shop, certainly not, but I've been to donut shops like this where it's... It's Vietnamese owned. It's a family operated business. It's a situation where, you know, it's like the orange seat situation definitely like sure. pulled out some primal childhood. Sure, ever. sure, sure. So go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, that's okay. I was just going to say so much like how, remember when we recorded desperately seeking Susan and you were saying like this is a snapshot of a New York that doesn't exist anymore yep I feel so much that that specifically donut time is a snapshot of West Hollywood that just isn't there anymore because now it's yoga studios and coffee shops and Bikram and you can get your dog groomed (laughs) I think we're figuring out that that is something we deeply appreciate in movies. Lost times, lost places. Yeah. Yeah. That that moving snapshot story of a piece of culture that just is gone at this point and and is only found in the, you know, tiniest back corners of specific cities. Yeah. Um, you spent a lot more time of your life in California than I have. How accurate was the sun? Because I got to tell you, the whole movie, we, we talked about the color, we talked about how it's beautiful. Tangerine is such an appropriate title because everything in the daylight of this movie is so like so orange, it's green somehow. It, it, it incredibly striking, unlike anything else I've seen. And I, I wondered how, if that Reddit at all is like accurate to you. So how much do you know about smog? <laughs> Not a whole lot. So um, smog tests are regulated. Uh, last time I lived there, I don't know if they currently are, but last sure. time I lived there, smog tests are regulated in the state of California. Um, because smog can get so bad. And specifically in Los Angeles, specifically in the area this movie is set, it can linger pretty badly um and smog actually has an effect on how the sun filters through light 
Makes sense. Okay. So especially recently with COVID-19, smog has been clearing up in certain more congested areas of California. So there's been a lot of like, similarly to how people are like, oh, the oceans are so much cleaner. The dolphins are, the dolphins are returning to Verona or whatever. (laughs) But like there are genuine overhead shots of 405 and 5 meeting and um the smog is so much clearer so this the specific sky look with the palm trees and the like orangish sky is changing because of how smog changes filtered light science fact kids that's awesome i love it (laughs) well okay so then that just goes to show being able to like capture that being like it wouldn't be an accurate depiction of west hollywood without the smog coloring the lighting of everything yeah i love that so did you happen to find a quote (laughs) uh indeed i did um (laughs) this movie is incredibly quotable cindy and alexandra are hilarious yes (laughs) my quote is bitch you know i don't do downers bitch you know i'm an upper hoe which is someone who simultaneously struggles with anxiety and depression. I'm like, yeah, I'm an, I'm an uppers bitch. <laughs> I understand that. I love it. Yeah, that's great. The first the first uh, 20 minutes of this movie is so peppered with great dialogue. Um, this wasn't my quote, but I think my, the funniest line in the movie is when Cindy's like, he cheated on me with real fish? Or he cheated on me with fish? And Alexander just goes, yeah, fish, like real fish, like a vagina. (laughs) As a vagina haver, I was like, oh, okay. Uh, My actual quote, turning this back to Rasmic for a second, uh, Christmas is for Americans. He says it as kind of a lie because he isn't actually trying to go to work. He's trying to go pursue Cindy. But just the idea of it is is prevalent. And, and I'm not an immigrant, but that feels very accurate of the immigrant experience, especially in modern times. Like, no, you sit around and party around the table. I have to go work. Yeah. You know, Rasmic is a tragic figure. He's he's window dressing. He never gets closure. No. His poor wife, we never see her come out of the room to like either kick him out or 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 forgive him or just something like I kind of think that's the point for her is that she's not going to do either. She's just going to keep coexisting with the mm. man who provides which is very realistic. And yeah. I will say about this movie, like it's incredibly realistic. Absolutely. So I just, you know, wanted to give one last moment for, for Rasmic and his <laughs> family. So that was my quote. Speaking of giving moments um, here on cult fiction, because none of these movies have made an Oscar Though I will say this movie has reached several awards, has been highly talked about. Like you said, it premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. The Film Festival. Yep. Uh, I couldn't remember which one. Um, We try and give all of our movies Oscars. So, Andy, did you find something to give this movie an Oscar for? I did. You know, I'm going to highlight another uh, character who is 
presumably an immigrant. Uh, I would like to give Tangerine the Oscar for most accurate clerk for the Donut Time Girl. <laughs> Who is just over everyone's shit. Over everyone's shit. Constantly threatening to call the cops, but also not getting paid enough for this bullshit. And not actually, like, forcing them to leave on the first time. Like, they have to cause a downright disturbance <laughs> before she even is, like, picking up the phone. So even, even with Clerks being in our canon, I would like to give that brilliant uh, Vietnamese donut shop clerk worker... The Oscar for best clerk in a movie, because <laughs> for just not even giving a shit, not even as much, not even as much as Dante would give. <laughs> you know what? I appreciate that. She's subversive. My Oscar to transition is the Oscar for most subversive Christmas movie. You may say it's Die Hard. However, I would argue it's this movie. I think you've got a point because, like. <laughs> I watched this movie and it never felt Christmassy. It, it takes place on Christmas Eve. <laughs> the only moment it at all seemed even close to me is when Alexandra is walking through the block that has all the lights. Yeah. But, you know, they talk about it constantly. It's the first line of the film. And I think Subversive is absolutely right because that is probably part of the point of the movie is, yeah, this is what Christmas in West Hollywood feels like. This is what Christmas as a sex worker or someone in the service industry looks like. You go to work. Christmas is for Americans. Christmas is for people who aren't in the service industry. You wake up. You go to work. It doesn't matter that it's a holiday. It doesn't matter that it's a day the bank is closed. You're open. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of brilliant. Do you have a Kevin Bacon? <laughs> I do, and uh, I have a funny feeling that we at least picked the same guy, though I think we got there in different ways. Um, I, I mentioned before, Jack Ransom is the only, like, I've been in other movies before this yes. actor. Yes. Um, and I was able to connect him to Kevin Bacon... Uh, in a couple of moves, uh, Jack Ransom was in Sinister with Ethan Hawke, who was in New York, I Love You with Kevin Bacon. That's fair. Uh, he was also an old boy with Josh Brolin, who was in Hollow Man with Kevin Bacon. Okay, so we All tied. Right. Ha ha! I will take it. AKA you tied with Alex because he I mean, figures all that out. You know. Uh, a tie is still a victory uh, in my book. <laughs> and I will celebrate the victory the same way I celebrate defeats. Uh, by, by picking a new movie. By picking a new movie. <laughs> <laughs> by putting my hands in the Hollywood crypt. Um, I can't imagine it has some sort of thematic triple feature in mind for us, though. I wouldn't have thought that Tangerine and Pusher were as alike as they are. So we're going to find out. We have 307 movies on the list. And it is 294. Ooh, not Anaconda. 294 is 
a movie called The Hunger. And here's what I know about The Hunger. David Bowie's a vampire. I'm sorry, what? Let's pull it up. But that is the like that is the reason I put this on the list. <laughs> Not that it's a cult movie. No, no. That's in the entire reason of our podcast. Yeah, well, that's for us to... to, to blah, 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 blah. That's for us to judge and decide after we watch it. Uh, the Hunger 1938 Vampire... 1983 vampire movie a love triangle develops between a beautiful yet dangerous vampire her cellist companion and a gerontologist i don't even know what a gerontologist is. i don't either but all i know is david bowie uh stars in this film and i'm very happy so very for excited. one christopher Troggett who reliably texts me where we can see this movie where can we see this let's find out straight up um hbo max amazon for rent it's available on rent all right so uh it looks it seems to be that the hunger is available for rent on amazon or on voodoo uh, and it's also coming up on hbo max which I don't have a subscription to. Oh, um, no. But it looks like it's available on HBO Max. Excellent. Well, that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow us on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. You can also follow, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close the cut for now. But join us next time where I'm certainly going to drool over David Bowie. And it's up to you if you do as well. As we watch Tony Scott's vampire epic, The Hunger. For Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Bowell. Hey.